Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, leading the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. It's been 10 years since California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger launched California's attack on climate change by signing a law to reduce carbon pollution across the state's economy. That pioneering law, known as Assembly Bill 32, or AB 32, is arguably the most important piece of climate legislation in the country. Today, that law puts a price on greenhouse gases and is generating billions of dollars in revenues. It also has put California at the forefront of the global move to protect the climate that supports our economy and lifestyles. On the show today, we will explore the impact of AB 32 and other climate laws are having on the price of gasoline, electricity, jobs, innovation, and our way of life. We also will discuss the prospect of self-driving cars and California's role in the Paris Climate Agreement, a flexible plan endorsed by nearly every country in the world to move away from fossil fuels. We're joined by three people who are playing leading roles in the debate over how California will run its economy and how we all get around. State Senator Fran Pavley co-authored AB 32 and other laws regulating fracking and tailpipe emissions. She recently led the successful effort to extend much of California's main climate law for another 10 years. Now Senator Pavley's in the final weeks of her 16-year career as a state legislator. Kathy Reheis-Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association, which represents the oil industry in Arizona, California, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington. And Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board, the main state agency for regulating air quality and carbon pollution. He's a transportation expert and founding director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Davis. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, you all. I want to go back to 10 years ago this month uh, on Treasure Island, and where Governor Schwarzenegger signed AB 32, this California's main climate law. Let's hear what he had to say then. It's great to see all of you here today, and it is uh, wonderful to see so many people be part of this historic occasion. A few minutes 
in a few minutes we will be signing Assembly Bill 32. <coughs> when we sign this bill, we will begin a bold new era of environmental protection here in California that will change the course of history. In fact, we will create a whole new industry that will pump up our economy. So Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, Kathy Rehouse Boyd, uh, a new law, pump up the economy. Ten years later, what's been the impact? So, I mean, the way you've actually framed this conversation, and I'm really happy to be here, Greg, with Senator Pavley and Dr. Sperling. We've been actually doing this since 2006 together. So it's, it has been a while of uh, working together on this very important issue. And the way you pose the question is, you know, has it been helpful or hurtful? And frankly, I think it's been both. And, and I'll, I hope we'll get into that a little bit. But I think on the helpful side, I think it really has set a conversation for California that's a very important one, not only in the context of what we can do, but you know how that relates to things like the Paris Agreement and things that, that the international community is looking at. But also, as we, as we look at the positive side of it, we also have to find a way to minimize as much as we can the cost of the program, such that businesses and consumers can still you know, have the quality of life that they have as we're trying to, to move forward. So I sort, of, I sort of have yes on both sides of that question. Done some good, done some bad. Senator Padley, uh, this is your baby, uh, but AB 32, uh, 10 years in, what's, what's the scorecard? Well, as a former teacher, I suppose I would give it uh, an A minus, <laughs> but with a lot more work to be done, obviously, because this is going to take decades to get this right. Um, sometimes I look back and I, I think about what Governor Schwarzenegger said in his, uh, oftentimes in his speeches, he would say, well, we don't have to choose between a clean environment and a strong economy. We can have both. And... We can look at the math, what's happened since AB 32 passed back in 2006. Our economy has gotten bigger and emissions have gone down and we're on track to meet our 2020 targets. And some of the very popular programs that I know the public's been increasingly aware of and very supportive of are issues such as energy efficiency and buildings and appliances where you save money on utility bill plus reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We've done uh, tremendous good work on cars. Dan will talk about that. But um, we're seeing greater fuel efficiency in cars. In fact, everyone's benefiting from greater fuel efficiency of cars. And it's now a national policy. It started as a state policy, so we're not going it alone on all these policies, where by 2026 we'll average 546 miles per gallon, saving people money at the pump and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So my involvement in all this is making sure to the maximum extent possible we have a win-win-win, reducing climate pollution, um, cleaning up the air because of the contributing factor in health impacts, um, and also creating in-state jobs. And so uh, it's going to take a lot of work by a lot of good people, a lot of innovation. So I welcome this conversation as well. Thank you, Senator Pavley. Uh, Dan uh, Sperling, she gives it an A minus. Has it really helped or hurt the economy, or is it a mixed bag, as Kathy Reheis Boyd said? Well, I think there's no, it's so new. So there's some pieces of it that have been here a little longer, like the vehicle standards, but most of it, cap-and-trade, low-carbon fuel standard, they're just barely getting started. And perhaps the one that's, other one that's had an effect is the renewable portfolio standard requiring renewable energy 
for the electric utilities. But for the most part, we're just getting started. And I, I think the bigger question is, we have to do a lot. We have to do something. The science is overwhelming that you know, climate change is a huge risk to the earth, to California. And the question is, how do we move forward aggressively? And as Kathy said, we want to do it smart. And, and as Fran said, there's lots of things, low-hanging fruit. I mean, efficiency, like vehicle efficiency. We should have been doing that even if there was no climate change problem, no oil problem. We get so much, we, it costs about, for, to get that 50 miles per gallon, it'll cost us a little over $1,000 extra, but we get each consumer will get back at least three or $4,000 extra for themselves. So forget about climate and air pollution and everything else. Just on pure economics for the individual, it's, it's something really good. And that's the challenge here, is to start going down that curve. You know, where are the really good, no regrets, high payoff things, and, and figuring out how do we get further and I'll say one more thing, because I have Kathy next to me here, is that the challenge is that we don't really know exactly what this future is going to be, and some things are going to cost more. We don't know how fast innovation is going to happen. And so we need to be making investments and innovating, but we do need some flexibility there, because none of us are smart enough to know exactly how do we get from here to there? Kathy Rehars, boy, let's talk about there. Uh, there is growing, uh, in corporate America, growing recognition of, of climate change. Dan Sperling just mentioned energy efficiency for automobiles. That reduces the demand for gasoline. Is that a good thing? Is that something that WISPA, the Western <laughs> States oil companies, support? Or is that something that you resist? Well, I mean, we, we've always supported energy efficiency in, in all of its forms. So, and we've also always supported diversification. I mean, it's never good to have all of your eggs in one basket. I mean, none of us do that even in our stock portfolios, right? So um, I do think that it, it is a time where we have to look at all sources of energy as we go down this path together. And the one thing that I just get a little concerned about is that, you know, in California, the leadership position that it has taken is a very important one. But we have to remember we're still only less than 1% of the you know, of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So what we do matters from a leadership standpoint, but we have to make sure that we don't take such economic burden on ourselves that all we do is put our state at a competitive disadvantage unless other people are going to follow us. So it gets really important that whatever signals we're sending to the rest of the world, and whether it, and I hope we get into the issue of cap and trade, is because that's really important for the signal to the rest of the world. And, and we can lead, but if we, we have to have people follow us because this is a, this is a global pollutant, right? It, it does matter where, where emissions come from and how we address it collectively in the globe. It's a planet issue. It's not a, an in-your-backyard direct health issue. Sure. California can't solve the problem. Uh, there, talk about cap and trade. Transportation fuels were included in the program last year, and there was quite a debate about how much that would increase the cost of gasoline. Uh, some, some large numbers, I think the ultimate credible number is about 10 cents uh, a gallon. That uh, 
gasoline fluctuates by a lot more than that all the time. So was that an acceptable burden, or uh, do you think that was too much? Because some of the numbers that were, the oil industry suggested were a lot larger than that 10, 10 cents a gallon. Yeah, and, and we're, like Dan said, we're in the infancy of the program, right? So, you know, how much cost will actually be borne by this as the program ramps up? We'll be, you know, we'll all be watching. That's the market, right? Nobody knows what that will be. But when you have not only you, you, you first you, you've got the highest taxes on gasoline and diesel, you know, in, in the U.S. I mean, I think we're the third highest taxes. Plus, now you've got the ten cents for fuels under the cap and trade program, and you also have another complementary policy, as it's called in the state of California, the low carbon fuel standard, which also puts another five, four to five cents on on the on the gallon of gasoline, according to the Energy Commission. So. We're at low crude oil prices, so gasoline and diesel are at low cost, and those. So, the, so we're not really feeling that burden. But those are pretty significant costs to the consumers of, of California, and we're in the infancy of these programs. So I just think cost containment and design factors in the program are really super important, so that we control cost while we try to make our climate change objectives. So I mean, that's a balance that has to happen as the program ramps up. Senator Pavley, when this was first envisioned 10 years ago, there were a number of Western states that were going to join California mm-hmm. and kind of the idea is that California can't price itself out. Otherwise, businesses will go to Nevada or Oregon, lower Utah, lower cost states. A lot of those states rolled off after elections. They're no longer standing with California. Isn't it real that there is a risk that California can put itself at an economic disadvantage by pricing energy too high? Well, we always have to be careful and we always look at... Um any kind of leakage, that means, in simple terms, there's no point in having a um, carbon-polluting industry just move across state lines for whatever reason, because it still affects the planet. But what's really been happening here, sort of behind the scenes, even though what you said was correct, is states are working together. For example, Oregon and Washington and British Columbia have joined us with putting in uh, EV infrastructure for electric cars throughout our state. I just got back a few days ago from Mexico City. Amazing. The National Senate down there just unanimously passed the Paris Accord Agreement. The president of Mexico, who I met with for an hour, over an hour at the National Palace, he and the president of the United States and the prime minister of Canada have all agreed to adopt California's now the national standard of um, lower uh, excuse me, more fuel-efficient cars. Those will all be across all three uh, countries. Governor Brown has been very involved in other states. We call them subnational states, provinces, others all adopting similar policies. There's an amazing amount of things going on. I believe over 40 states now have renewable portfolio standards. We're waiting on Congress um, to move forward, and in the meantime, Uh, The most expensive thing I think we can do as a government is nothing. This is a huge challenge, and we're showing that this can be done cost-effectively and it's technologically feasible, and there's an amazing amount of good news stories, as well as new technologies that are right on the cusp of moving forward. BlackRock is a large research firm, investment management firm, one of the largest in the world. Kathy Reheisboard, they came out with a report recently uh, that said driverless cars could, quote, trigger a slide in demand for traditional cars and gasoline much quicker than markets expect. 
Uh, do you think that EVs and driverless cars, already there's soft, basically flat demand for gasoline in the United States because of efficiency. What is the potential that the industry's misreading demand and it could fall faster than it, the market expects? And that's BlackRock talking. Well, I mean, look at California, right? We have, what, 38 million people, soon to be 48 million people that drive 26, 27 million cars, 185 billion miles a year. That's a lot. We're the third largest gasoline-consuming entity in the world as a state, and only the two in front of us are China as, and the United States of America. So we, we travel a lot, we drive a lot, and we use a lot of, of gasoline and diesel, let alone jet fuel and marine fuel. Um, and then you've got the DOE's Department of Energy, excuse me, um, Energy Information Administration, who looks forward out to, say, 2040. And they're still estimating all the energy in, in the world in 2040 comes from, 80% comes from gold, coal, gas, and oil. So I think that it's just, in the context of the conversation, we have to sort of have the reality of the facts of what it's going to take and over what time period that we can do these types of transitions. And so, you know, I, that's a long time. And I know we have... SB 32, which we'll talk about now, and AB 197 at some point in this conversation, which takes us out to, to other targets out in 2030. Um, but still by 2040, which is 10 years past that, we're still 80% coal, gas, and oil. Dense so it's a, it's, a, it's a transition, right? Dense billing, is that true? Electric, a lot of environmentalists cheer electric cars. There's now half a million cars with a plug in the United States. Small fraction was a one or two percent of, of new car sales. Uh, it's going to take a long time. Is Kathy Rehorst Boyd right that mainly we're going to be running the economy on fossil fuels in 25 years? Well, that's probably true, but not. I wouldn't agree that as much as you know. Kathy was quoting some stellar organizations, but I think that there's a lot of rethinking of those numbers and those forecasts. So I do interact a lot with a lot of the big oil companies and, and DOE and International Energy Agency. And there's a lot of question about whether those forecasts of large continuing amounts of fossil fuel and oil are going to be correct. Because if you take, you know, vehicle efficiency is actually what's going to make the biggest difference in the next 20 years. And just look at us, we're going from 27 miles per gallon to 50-some miles per gallon. Our cars are going to be using half as much energy in 2025 as they were in 2010. Now, there are more cars, um, but that's U.S. That's not just California, that's U.S. Japan is doing the same thing, Europe is doing the same thing, China, Korea, and, and I guess now Mexico. So this is some this e- focus on efficiency is happening worldwide, and the question is, are we going to continue on that trajectory? We're every new year the new car, new vehicle is about four percent better than the previous year, and you keep doing the four percent and it starts becoming significant. Now, so the U.S., Europe, Japan, we are everyone agrees we're going to be using less fuel. The question is, what's going to happen in China and India? Latin America, and whether they're going to, and whether we're going to... The story I was telling was cars, and then we've got trucks and planes. So that's kind of the forecast for a lot of fossil energy, a lot of oil, let's say, is partly because we're going to use it for petrochemicals, um, 
Aviation, probably, you know, although there was an announcement yesterday that JetBlue is going to now use biodiesel uh, for their planes. So I think it can change. Nor- Here's an anecdote, a story. Norway has gone in just a few years from almost 0% electric cars to 30, 35% of their new car sales being electric. Now, okay, they subsidize it a lot, and there are some explanations, but they've flipped. You know, they're now in a region where electric cars are normal, and gasoline cars are the, kind of those dirty, uh, <laughs> polluting things. Kathy Boyd, uh, Steve Cole wrote a book, Private Empire, about ExxonMobil, and he said the one thing that really could disrupt that business model was a breakthrough in battery technology. Um, is that true? If there's a big breakthrough in battery technology, could that disrupt the oil industry? Or do you even worry about electric cars, or there's just going to be such a small niche that it's not going to displace oil? Yeah, I mean, all of you know, and we're a, we're a trade association, so we represent all all of all of the companies actually in the five states, and each of them have their own business plan, their own view of the future, and each of them are investing as much as the federal government uh, in research and development on all these alternative and renewable fuels, and each of them have. A different look. You know, ExxonMobil may look at lithium batteries while somebody else may buy an ethanol plant and see if they can, you know, make cellulosic something that can work in the future. So um, I think they're all interested in looking out in their own business plans and figuring out what that means for them as a company. And I can tell you, as being in a trade association, none of them think alike. They all have different views on the future. And it could be solar, it could be wind, it could be battery technology. And, and Dan knows this probably from talking to my members better than I do, um, that there, there's a wide range of options they're looking at as they themselves look at the future and, and what that means for them as a company. Senator Pavley, Governor Brown recently uh, signed a bill on super pollutants. We're talking mm-hmm. a lot here about carbon pollution, which is greenhouse gases. There's another category of pollutants that are kind of, a lot of them come out of both ends of a cow. Uh, <laughs> how important is this, this new law to get at dairy and other parts, methane, other parts of the, the climate challenge? Well, it fits in really well with uh, segueing into SB 32, because if we're going to reach the targets they talk about in 2030, the 40% reduction below 1990 levels, um, all of the above have to be in play. More fuel-efficient cars, electrification of the grid, battery storage technology for cars, as well as replacing natural gas for homes or utility power plants. There's actually a new uh, battery storage place. It's open in the Los Angeles area. We have an alternative fuel company that was so excited about SB 32 passing that uh, because of the market signal that's being sent that they're investing in new people, and they've taken over an old oil refinery. They have a long-term contract with United Airlines on biofuels. There's a lot of, lot of excitement in moving forward on all these technologies. I know we can do this. Dan Sperling, biofuels were all the rage a few years ago, and they haven't really, they've been kind of disappointing, actually. Uh, uh, they haven't come through. Some of the companies that started uh, making alternative fuels are now making makeup because they can make more money at lower volumes. So, uh, you know, tell us about the prospect for cellulosic biofuels that can go in existing pumps, existing tanks. They've been kind of a disappointment. You know, before I answer that, let me back up just a second, because I want to talk about what California is doing, California's leadership. Fran mentioned that California is not an island, and the climate problem is a global problem. But what we're doing in California, so what we do in terms of actual emission reductions in California 
has a small effect. But what we do in terms of policy innovation, what we do in terms of creating the industries and the innovation really is global. And we are creating the platform in California for economic growth and leadership by nurturing those technologies, encouraging you know, solar technologies, the batteries, the vehicles, you know, the Teslas. Uh, and so we are positioning us, ourselves for the future, which you know, is going to be very different. And we're going to be ready for it more than a lot of places. Now, the biofuels <laughs> is, is a big challenge. And there's a lot of things that have happened faster than we expected, including the battery has improved much faster than any of the experts thought, any of the companies thought. The biofuels has been just the opposite, is that we thought the cellulosic biofuels, the biofuels made out of wood and grasses, um, we thought we'd have it by now. The federal government adopted a requirement for, um, you know, 17, 15 billion gallons of it by 2022. Not going to happen. And I think mistakes were made. Um, not enough was invested in developing the right plants that would be used in terms of processing it. There was a lot of hubris that we knew more than we knew. And we had some venture capitalists and some others that were overselling it, hyping it. And so now I think we're in a little retrenchment. And I think we're looking at it differently now. Now we're looking at, okay, we got this big corn ethanol industry. And you can think what you want of it, but they are bringing some innovation into it. They are getting more efficient. They're pulling the corn oil out of it to use as a diesel fuel. They're starting to take some of the corn cobs, and, which is cellulose, and processing it. So they're making, it's kind of an incremental path. But I think what we really need now is the oil industry to get engaged. The oil industry is the only one with the resources, the capabilities to really scale it up, to make the investments that are needed, uh, because otherwise it's, it's not going to happen fast. It's going to happen slow. And so I'm just trying to figure out how do we get those oil companies, and some of them are. There are some of the oil companies that are investing a fair amount, as, uh, you know, as we're talking about, you know, Kathy was saying, there are some investing in different types of biofuels and uh, advanced biofuels, but it's just have, it's not very much, and that's, we come back to policy, and I don't know if you want to talk about policy, and that's well, let's where get Kathy, Kathy and I on that. Why aren't they investing more? Because they, they, there's sort of this pattern of, of oil companies, they dip their toe in, they, they, they invest, they divest, they don't stay with it very long. Maybe that's because what they, their primary product has higher profit margins than this no, experiment? I mean, I mean, frankly, if you really look at the data, which, you know, the data actually matters. You know, facts actually do matter in these conversations. And if you look at the data, the investments that our, our companies make are equal to the federal government. And the only next investments by the auto companies are quite, quite far less than the ones we've made. So we are making huge investments to try to figure this out. And, and it's easier on the diesel side than it is on the gasoline side. On the diesel side, the biodiesel side is progressing pretty, pretty well. 
Um, the difficult stuff on the on the gasoline side is in California, and in, you know, as you know, you can only blend so much ethanol in gasoline before you hit what's called the blend wall. And California doesn't let you blend more than 10% for very good reasons because it begins to have impacts on the engine. So you have, you have 10% to work with that you can blend in gasoline to make it less carbon intensive, to lower its carbon. And the only thing we have is either corn-based ethanol or something like sugarcane-based ethanol. Um, and those don't, those, you know, they're making progress, but the carbon intensity isn't where it needs to be to, to really advance that. And it's just not commercially scalable. The, the getting the energy conversion on ethanol side from the biomass to the energy side is just, it's been tough. And not just for our industry, there's been many who've, who've tried to crack the, you know, crack that nut. Um, but, but one other thing I think that's important and, and, Dan began to get into it, and and I hope we have time here, Greg, to touch on it, because I am very concerned about where we find ourselves right now relative to the passage of SB 32 and AB 197, which which are connected, and I want to make sure we have that conversation, because we have obviously, you know, Senator Pavley here, who was very instrumental in, in having that pass, and my worry is this program in California from AB 32 has been, cap and trade has been its cornerstone. And be, why, and for the audience who doesn't understand cap and trade, a cap is the environmental side. Where's my friend Alex from NRDC, right? It's a declining oh, yeah. cap. It's, it's, the, it's the environmental side of cap and trade. The trade is the business side. It makes it more cost effective to meet that cap why we like market mechanisms like cap and trade programs or carbon tax. They're all market driven. And now we have cap and trade being the cornerstone of the California program, yet we don't have a bill we don't have a program that goes past twenty twenty on cap and trade. And and it seems like when you read A B one ninety seven, which is connected to it, that we're going a that we're transitioning away from cap and trade and we seem to be moving more back to command and control. And I I may be reading it wrong, I haven't dug into it entirely yet. But I get concerned, and I see the report just released by the California Environmental Justice Alliance, which basically says cap-and-trade should go away. And so I, I find myself sitting here wondering, how are we going to reconcile that with our leadership position in Paris and the rest of the international community going in cap-and-trade, and us sort of trying to figure out where we're going? So let me just clarify, you're saying cap-and-trade should stay, you're supporting it, and yet there's a California Chamber of Commerce lawsuit that's trying to uh, challenge cap-and-trade. So, so, would- so let's, let's be clear on that, because again, facts matter. And so if you look at the Attorney General's brief on the Chamber of Commerce's litigation, it actually says on page two that it is not in any way an attack on climate change. The only thing the uh, the uh, Chamber's lawsuit says is that did AB 32 authorize the um, auctioning of revenues to generate billions of dollars, and is that a tax or a fee? And if it was a tax, it should have been a two-thirds vote. That's it. Senator Pavley, the future of the, uh, California's climate program, we're hearing that uh, from Kathy Reheis-Boyd from the oil industry that she has some challenges. Your response to that? Uh, my response is the cornerstone for AB 32 was the cap, the cap on emissions. The environmental benefits to fight climate change. Right. And now, historically, whether it's combating smog, right, in cars, it was a command and control and a reduction of emissions. Business community, 
wanted some flexible compliance mechanisms in reducing emissions. They can either make direct reductions, so their refineries or whatever um, carbon they were emitting could be um, continued to go on but reduce their emissions to comply, or they could purchase allowances that would allow them to pollute. We always say they would have to pay to pollute. So the discussion we're having, and it gets to be, you know, very much insider's game, I guess, is do you want to, in future years, pass cap-and-trade post-2020? There's some legal debate on whether you need a two-thirds vote or not. Um, I would say to you, most of the business communities, now that SB 32 is passed and there's a cap on emissions going to 2040, they will want the flexible uh, emission, uh, compliance mechanisms, and that may require a two-thirds, a two-thirds vote. So uh, part of the discussions in cap-and-trade is where the money is being expended, and most of the benefits would probably go to the a lot of the disadvantaged communities who bear a disproportionate share of the impacts on climate change. That gets a lot of people in the room as well. So I would say that will be one of the discussions in the next two years. Um, for Governor Brown in the next legislature. We're talking about California's Climate Action Plan at Climate One. That's State Senator Fran Pavley. We also have Kathy Reheis-Boyd from the Western States Petroleum Association and Dan Sperling, a member of the California Air Board. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask a series of yes or no quick association questions of our guests. Uh, So yes or no, Dan Sperling, electric vehicles will save the bacon of electric utilities otherwise caught in a death spiral? No. <laughs> they will be successful, but they will not for the... <laughs> they not. won't save the utilities. Uh, Kathy Reheis Boyd, you are happy Senator Pavley is termed out of office. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say, I always offered the oil companies an option. They could have bought out my contract. in Hawaii. <laughs> No, which we so, didn't take. So, <laughs> SB 32, see what happens. You can uh, say anything you want right, now, yes, can't you? I know. Yeah. Whether it's free right now. Yeah. Isn't uh, that nice? Yeah. Not, I'm just kidding, yeah, of course. I I, I've actually um, enjoyed the relationship, but, you know, um, as former Senator Sheila Kuehl always told me, you can always be gracious when you win. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Fran Pavley, oil companies extract fuel from the age of dinosaurs, and if they don't adapt quickly, some of them may become dinosaurs themselves. True. Kathy Reheis-Boyd, Tesla's Gigafactory for car batteries gives you heartburn. No. Kathy Reheis-Boyd, yes or no, white people in California breathe cleaner air near their homes than people of color. Could be true. Dan Sperling, when it comes to fighting public interest in cleaner fuels, Chevron is the new Exxon. Well, that implies a lot of things. Um, <laughs> uh, they have not, Chevron has not been supportive of biofuels. Uh, we are going to change this a little bit and just I'm going to mention a, a word or phrase and you tell me what first pops into your mind. No filtering. This is kind of fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kathy Reheis, boy, the new Chevy Bolt with a BEV with a 200-mile range and a $35,000 price tag. What am I supposed to do? What pops in my mind? Yeah, what do you think about the Chevy Bolt? Some people... Interesting. Uh, Fran Pavley, hamburgers. Less beef. 
Dan Sperling, high-speed rail. Hopeful solution. <laughs> Kathy Reheis Boyd, Volkswagen diesels. Like them. <laughs> Governor Jerry Brown for Kathy Reheis Boyd. Pragmatic. Uh, also, last one for Kathy, not last one, but another one for Kathy. California's new law regulating cow burps and other super pollutants. <laughs> Tough. Dan Sperling, the American Petroleum Institute. Slowing things down. <laughs> also for Dan Sperling, Fran Pavley's legislative legacy. Brilliant and long-lasting. Fran Pavley, fracking. <laughs> you got it. I. <laughs> you wrote the law regulating it, so I'm... <laughs> I know. I had to work with the oil companies. We did. And we did That's it. before. We did it. We but did. it's regulated. We know where they're fracking, what water they're using. They better not be contaminating aquifers. And eventually, it'll be phased out. Also, Fran Pavley, uh, retirement. Looking forward. Hyphenated, <laughs> <laughs> right? And last one for Kathy Reheis Boyd, the Republican Party. In transition. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's the end. How they do? Let's give them a round for getting through that. Um. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. A big part of meeting our state's emission reduction goals is getting Californians to give up the gas hoggers. In 2011, Anthony Eggert of the California Energy Commission envisioned us having a million EVs on the road by 2020. So, how are we doing on that? Eileen Tutt of the California Electric Transportation Commission joined us recently with an update and some good reasons to make the switch. We have about 160 thousand vehicles and so we have four more years to do 840,000 vehicles. I believe we can make it to a million, but I think the challenge right now is all about gas prices. The fact that you can get gas at $2 a gallon is really really hurting this market and and I don't see that changing anytime soon, but I guess I'm still hopeful that, uh, that we'll get close to a million. I think it's great to have that good target. And I, I want to point out that I think what we're doing in California, the zero emission vehicle requirement from the Air Resources Board is very important, but we also have incentive programs. The federal government offers very generous incentives. There's something called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, where your utility will give you money on your utility bill if you tell them you have an electric vehicle and you plug it in at home. There are um, HOV lane in California. So in this state, the, the mandate or the requirement on automakers is one component, but I think part of the reason we're succeeding this time is because the state government you know, at the Public Utilities Commission, at the California Energy Commission, at the Air Resources Board, and now the federal government, everybody's pulling together to try to encourage consumers to make, you know, the greenest choice out there, which is a plug-in electric vehicle. That's Eileen Tutt of the California Electric Transportation Commission, speaking to Climate One in 2016. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. We are talking about uh, climate change at Climate One with our guest, Kathy Reheis Boyd from the Western States Petroleum Association, State Senator Fran Pavley, and Dan Sperling, the transportation 
expert. Uh, Dan Sperling, tell us about Paris. Uh, you said earlier that California's leadership was significant. So Paris is this big deal. All the countries are on board for doing it. How does California matter there? As Kathy Rehouse Boyd said earlier, we're only 1% of the problem. Less than. I, hope, I, I was hoping you were doing it part of the previous. I was going to say great wine, good cheese. <laughs> oh, Paris, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, more serious. Um, well, I think California's played a huge role in, one, in, in, as a leader and in influencing Washington, what happens in Washington, never mind elsewhere. You know, like I personally, I work with China on their development of a zero-emission vehicle mandate for China. So we, from California, are having a lot of influence around the world, and we give... I mean, for a long time, the United States was kind of a laggard in, in addressing climate change, and I think now, uh, you know, thanks in large part to California's role, uh, it's no longer seen that way, and California... You know, when Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Brown, they go around the world and they speak and they encourage the subnationals, and they're having a, a, a big influence. And Paris represents the nations of the world joining together and saying, we've got a big problem. We've got to do something about it. And we used to hear all these stories about, well, we'll be disadvantaged relative to China. Um, but everyone's on board. China you know, is investing more in renewable energy and is investing more in electric vehicles than we are. So, I mean, I, I don't buy the argument anymore that, you know, worrying about being disadvantaged. There's so many parts of the world that are moving forward aggressively, more aggressively than we are. And one area that is pushing that is this increasing, well, concern about... The carbon budget, there's a certain amount of carbon that we can burn to stay below with a red line the world uh, community has drawn. We're already more than halfway there, I think, at current rates. We burned through that whole budget in about 10 years. Uh, early last year, we had Angus Gillespie, vice president for CO2 at Shell Oil, here at Climate One uh, for a discussion on the future of oil. He had a very interesting point to make on what has been described as a carbon bubble. Let's listen to Angus Gillespie from Shell Oil. So you've heard a lot of talk recently about things like unburnable carbon, the carbon bubble and other things. This is the market, the investors starting to realise how significant a risk climate change can be to their investment stock. Now this is a type of thing that starts to get real action because once senior executives see the impact on the stock price, then you know, real activity, long-term activity really starts to take traction. That's Angus Gillespie from Shell Oil. Kathy Rehouse Boyd, that's an oil executive saying that they're concerned about these 30-year investments they're making, that they may not get their money back. They'll have to write down those investments if there's a price on carbon or the economics are changing. Well, I, and I think one of the things that I'm very interested in hearing about from uh, Senator Pavley and Dr. Sperling is this issue of how do you price carbon? I'm in an interesting position with my companies that I represent that have different views on market mechanisms. And as you know, we have two. We have a cap-and-trade program, which is a market mechanism, and we have a carbon tax, which is a market mechanism. And for the audience, the only difference is, is in cap-and-trade, you certainly know the emission reductions you're going to make, but you're not as certain about the price. On carbon tax, you know the price, but you're not as certain on the reductions you made. But they're both driven by the market. And I'm very curious um, 
where the conversation is going to go on cap and trade versus versus a carbon tax because look it up in Washington state. I mean, we have an initiative 732 on the ballot right now that is a carbon tax. So you got, you've got all these different things sort of swirling around on, on what is the right answer. I know the Air Resources Board certainly looked at a carbon tax early on. Um, so I'm just sort of curious if I couldn't just get their views on that versus cap and trade. I've just been Senator fascinated Pavlidis. by trying to figure it out. <laughs> California's chosen cap and trade. Some uh, Secretary Schultz, some Republicans support a, uh, a carbon tax. There's some rumors that a carbon fee may be introduced in a new Congress next year, 2017, by Republicans. Uh, your take on how that would affect California? Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I think we all agree you have to put a price on carbon, and that's uh, what we're doing, whether it's cap and trade. Here's where I have an issue with the carbon tax. Um, it really is not a very progressive tax. It really disadvantages, you know, lower-income people. It does send a price signal, but let's look at this. Right now, if oil companies are polluting, they're buying allowances, and we're using it to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that we can quantify those reductions. A carbon tax, they're not paying a thing. You're paying it at the pump when you refill your car, It's the public that's paying it. So when we had this discussion a few years ago, Daryl Steinberg had authored a bill. It was supported by the oil companies. They want to shift it over there. So it does have a price signal. Some people prefer that. I think uh, national policy, we should all um, get behind whichever direction that they so choose. Uh, But you need a combination of incentives and investments in order to reduce carbon emissions. I'm not sure carbon tax by itself is going to get the job done because of the, the cost shifting it's going to go to. It's not going to the polluter, per se, unless there's a way to do that. It's going to the end user. Dan Sperling, it's pretty messy. There's different states tackling this differently. We don't have national action. It, you know, how can this be effective? Okay, I need to speak as a professor here. I did my diplomatic uh, answers already. Uh, I mean, okay, one big issue here is how do you use the money? Because with a carbon tax, you generate lots of money too. I mean, it's really, you generate essentially the same amount of money depending on how you do it, whether it's cap and trade and carbon tax. And one question is how do you use that money? And, you know, I think to get it accepted on a national level, it's going to have to mostly go back through income taxes or rebates. And you can structure it so Cap that lower-income yeah. people get more yes. of it. Yeah. And, and that probably should happen. You should probably take a certain percentage of it and dedicate it to those that are most disadvantaged. You should probably take some of it to, the, to companies that are disadvantaged in some way. You probably should put a little in R&D. But probably, I mean, most economists now uh, would say you should give it back in some way. That's the most efficient thing to do. So the thing with carbon tax, so one, I used to be a much stronger advocate for cap and trade relative to carbon tax, but one of the things I've come to understand is with a carbon tax, something Kathy said I think is right, is that it sets a specific certain price on carbon. And I always thought, yeah, okay. But company after company comes to me, biofuel companies, 
all kinds of low-carbon efficiency innovation uh, efficiency companies say, I need to know what the price will be so I can go to the bank. You know, low-carbon fuel standard is another one. I need to, when I go to the bank, I got to be able to say, I'm going to get that much, you know, bonus from having a price on carbon. And with ca- it's one of the weaknesses of the cap-and-trade on the other hand, cap and trade really provides a structure with a certain amount of certainty. It makes it easier to connect with other geographic regions. You know, at the end of the day, there's no good answer on this, I think. We're going to go to audience questions. We're talking about climate change at Climate One. Welcome. Hi, my name is Sarah Golden. I uh, run an online social media campaign called Stop Fooling California. My question is for Catherine Reheis-Boyd. I'm wondering if, in some ways, when you look at the past and what's happened in energy and climate policies, if you, in some ways, have blind spots of what's going to happen in the future and how much your the way that you um, represent different industry interests may shape the way that you may not be forward-looking. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. Um, and uh, obviously, I, I know your organization well. Um, I, I hope not. I mean, I really hope I don't. Um, and I hope our industry doesn't. And I think we have evidence of that. I mean, we've been engaged in these conversations since 2006. I mean, we, we were supportive of the bill in 2015, which was to actually extend cap and trade past 2020. That was our organization. Uh, it was the Atkins bill, AB 1288. Now, we certainly had things we wanted to make sure happened if that was the case. And again, we didn't, we didn't as an industry, you know, we don't even have a position on whether we prefer cap and trade or carbon tax. They're both market mechanisms, and I have companies who like one versus the other all over the place. So we do support having a market mechanism, but not necessarily which, which one of those a state may choose. Um, as Dan said, it kind of makes the same uh, approach. And so the only things we were concerned about if California picked a cap-and-trade program, which it did, was to make sure that the businesses and the consumers are as protected as possible because the costs are high. And we still have a state that's very diverse. We have still a high poverty rate. We still have people that are very much unemployed and above the national average. So we have to look at these choices going forward as we ha- I think we have, both from the environmental side and, and the economic side. And I, I am a firm believer that the two go hand in glove and that you can have both. But the design factors are really, really important on what we do here, not only in the past, but certainly now going forward. Economist Nick Stern, who was sitting up here a couple uh, months ago, would also say there's a cost to doing nothing, that climate change can shave 10 to 20% off of global GDP. So would you recognize, Kathy, that there is a cost of inaction also? Absolutely. In fact, there's three, really. There, I mentioned two. I mean, it's really social, environmental, and economic, right? It's all three of those that are very, very important. And how we deal with communities is extremely important. And in the space of climate change, I'm hoping that we can understand that at least for communities, dealing with um, pollutants that are impacting people's health is through a program that's designed in the criteria pollutant side. It's with particulate matter and sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide that is a direct impact to health. That is not a climate change problem. That's a criteria pollutant problem. When we're in climate change, we're talking about a global pollutant that we cannot just be the only state 
that incurs huge costs because energy costs are high, electricity is high. I mean, and we're, we have a very diverse population. So it's not, a, it's not an easy answer, right? We, we've got to come together on all three of those social, economic, and environmental policies. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, Jeff Ricker. Uh, Fran and Dan, has, has anyone quantified the benefits of these laws here in terms of how much lower the world's temperature is from, from all this? Dan Sperling, how can you measure California's leadership? Quantify it. Well, we haven't gotten much reduction, as I said in the beginning. We're really just getting started. Um, so the amount of reduction, I mean, you know, you could twist that question into all kinds of uh, things. But I think at the end of the day, um, you can't think today, tomorrow, one year. We're, this is the future of the planet, the future of the human race, the future of species. So we know we need major reductions. I think a much better way of thinking about it is, you know, what do we do that's most cost-effective as soon as possible? But also, there are some things we have to position ourselves for the long term uh, as well. It might cost a little bit more in the near term. So it's really, certainly we need to be using cost as a metric in analyzing what we do. But there's a lot of uncertainty and, you know, both on the costs, uh, in terms of forecasting costs, I'm, you know, that's my profession, <laughs> you know, and I hang out with people that we're forecasting. What's the rate of innovation? How, what's going to happen to the cost of batteries? What's going to happen uh, to all these new technologies that we're talking about? But then there's uncertainty there. There's even more uncertainty on the, on the impact side to know how bad are we destroying the world, you know, fires and rising waters. So, yes, I could give you a quantitative number, but it wouldn't be very meaningful because we need to... You have to think about it as a, as a, a supply curve of options. And let's start doing the cheapest things and preparing for the long term. Uh, and, and then we'll figure out the price of carbon. I mean, people say it should be valued at $50 um, we are not pricing. So most people say we should price it at $50 a ton. <clears throat> Our cap-and-trade program is $12 a ton. So clearly, we're not doing a good enough job in California and elsewhere in terms of pricing carbon in a way that leads us to the, the best, most cost-effective reduction in carbon. Wait, can I add to sure, that? Sure, Kathy. Um, oh, sorry. You want to go first, Anna? Well, I just... Um, We've had sort of those uh, kinds of questions thrown at us before, sort of a, a gotcha kind of thing. So um, I wanted to talk about a really sort of success story. And I was uh, in the legislature back in 2002 or three. The most controversial bill back then was to come up with renewable portfolio standard. All the utilities opposed, Chamber of Commerce opposed, and this was for 20%. It was a Senator Scheer bill. Uh, 20% of all our energy mix should come from clean, renewable sources. We'd just come through a horrible deregulation where our economy had really tanked, um, brownouts everywhere, if you remember. We're in such a better place today. We have diversified our, our energy supply. So fast forward several years after the 20% showing that we could do that, and the utility companies got behind it because they realized it was... Uh, really a smart investment in renewable energy for them to diversify their their portfolio. 
Then it came to 33%. We're getting bipartisan support in the legislature because wind and solar companies are in everyone's district. And now the utility companies at the plate ended up supporting 50% of all the energy mix in the state of California will come from clean, renewable sources. In-state jobs, no more Enron gaming the system here. That's been a tremendous benefit to the state of California and its economy. And the concern at the beginning was the price of photovoltaic cells. It's cost-effective. We have financing plans like with Solar City, no upfront costs, and the list goes on and on. So uh, these embedded policies in what is called AB32 or SB32 are the real success stories where they've saved people money and also helped the environment but creating jobs at the same time. And so those are the kinds of um, cost-effective, technologically feasible conditions with those market signals for investment in our state that have become really beneficial. Let's ask Kathy quickly, and then we'll go to our next question. Yeah, I mean, the one, the one thing that the gentleman brought up that just spurred a thought, and, and, and that is with, with SB32 and AB32, you really are talking about probably more like 55% reduction, Right. I think it's about 15% under AB32, another 40% projected under, under the new um, bill. That's 55% reduction in emissions from a state that's less than 1% of the problem. And so I, just, I don't say that, that, that in a negative way. I just say it in a way that we should condition our leadership such that we challenge other people to join in the fight on climate change. Because if we don't, and that's why you hear economists talk about conditioning California's policy, like, we'll do it if you do, to challenge them to join, because if not, the cost of 55% reductions in this short of a time period, when it's less than 1% of the, of the climate's problem, that's a, that's a hefty price tag. And, and so I, that, that's, it just reminded me that... I've gone to question. several of the UN climate conferences. The one in Mexico particularly was after the collapse in Copenhagen. And people look to California leadership. Without California leadership, the U.S. is not as credible. They look to California for leadership on culture and innovation, lots of things. So that leadership matters. It makes the U.S. more credible in those international arenas. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking about climate change. Hi, Ryan Schuhard with CalStart. Senator Fran Pavley, thank you for your many years of brilliant leadership. Um, question for anyone who'll take it. Uh, one year ago, we got SB 350, which directed the CPUC to direct utilities to accelerate widespread transportation and electrification. Last week, the CPUC did so, uh, and the utilities are now uh, working on that. Um, what does widespread transportation electrification look like? Uh, what, will, what will we see uh, when it's here? We'd like to tackle that. Dan, Dan Sperling, are, uh, car guy. Car My guy. favorite topic. Car guy. He's writing a book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've written many books on it. So electrification is... Ha- for light-duty vehicles, it's going to be almost total electrification. It's really just a question of how soon and exactly um, the nature of it. So I drive a hydrogen car, which is an electric car. And I get hydrogen, but it's an electric car. So we're going to have some mix of battery electrics, plug-in hybrids, and fuel cell electrics. Light duty. The heavy duty, the trucks, is a lot more problematic. It's more challenging. It's going to be some mix of electric, battery electrics for shorter vehicles, making short trips, and biofuels, and hydrogen. Um, But I think it's pretty clear that 
uh, we're going ele- light duty. We are definitely electric. I, I, you can talk to any car company. Not a single one of the major car companies would argue with that anymore. Uh, it's a done deal, and it's really a, just a question of how fast uh, do we do that. And so that means you know more chargers, you know fast chargers, hydrogen stations uh, out there. Let's go I to mean, our next the, question. The gap's pretty. The gap's Sorry. pretty large. Obviously, the time period here matters because it's about three percent of the market right now in California. We have about two hundred thousand electric vehicles and twenty-six million other kinds of engines. So that's a pretty big gap between the two. So I think the timing mm-hmm. issue that Dan brings up is a really important one. And, and let's not forget natural gas. I mean, it has been probably the single most, you know, biggest thing we've done in, this, in the United States to deal with climate change is, is our ability to produce natural gas. Let's end it there. Our thanks to State Senator Fran Pavley, Kathy V. Highsford with the Western States Petroleum Association, and Dan Sterling. I'm Prime Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming and listening. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.